and we are recording with the one and only <laughs> Mr. Howard Bloom for my third ever episode live streamed. Um, so I was just Howard and I have talked before about our routines and the importance of them, and I was saying how my new one has evolved in that the apartment building I'm living in, my gym is my gym is in the building, so I don't have to walk. And most people might think there's what is what is that difference? But as you know, and like me, we time things down to the minute. So right. that, that it gives me just a little more time in the gym. And then I discovered a sauna in my building. Actually, my mom discovered it. I've been here for a month and she went into the gym bathroom and was like, did you see the sauna? And I was like, what's sauna? I love saunas. And I was like, oh, shit. So that's now factored in. And it's great because right now it's sleeting and snowing, but that has no effect because my 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 routine has been further internalized into one super apartment structure where I can do all of my OCD chaotic things. And it is it is untouched by weather. And most people on the outside are probably looking at us like two mental patients. But as we both have, as we are both workaholics with OCD, this is bliss to us. But yes, absolutely. With the one with the one exception, um, uh, perceptual frames, um, the way you perceive something depends on the frame you bring to it. And the frame you bring to it is often suggested by is always suggested by others in one way or another. So I'm about to be 80 in June. When I wake up every day, my the inclination of my perceptual frames, which are sometimes stronger than I am, is to believe that I'm old mm. and to start picking up all the cues, all the little tiny irritations, ailments, pains that I've got in order to prove that I'm old and deteriorating. Wow. So I get around that by doing 1,250 vibrational plankings. They were originally called push-ups, but the filmmakers making the film, The Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom, came back to me very sheepishly and said, you know what you're doing aren't push-ups, don't you? I had no clue. So when I saw the footage, I suddenly realized my body is vibrating up and down. Um, it's invented this new maneuver. Okay, here's the value to 1,250 vibrational plankings in the morning. It's hard as hell to do them. At every 100 mark, you want to quit, uh, and you have to persist. But if you do your 1,250 vibrational plankings, you have proved unequivocally that the frame of old age is wrong, 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 wrong. Oh. And then there's the business of getting outside. That I'm lucky because I've got a uh, 578 acre park um, right three and a half blocks away. And it is probably the most gorgeous park in the world because it was created as his masterpiece by Frederick, Frederick Olmsted, who was the greatest park designer of all time. And if I walk a total of five and a half miles in that park every day in two walks, one in the afternoon and one at night. So you might think, okay, what does this peculiar idiosyncrasy of yours have to do with anything, Bloom? Well, that sight, when I go out on the meadow and the sky opens up on either side and I see the sky, the sky as a hemisphere above me and the mere act of walking, um, it becomes a part of my personality for the rest of the day. Hmm. And like the vibrational plankings, it proves to me that I have control over my life. Hmm. Um that I'm capable of doing 
what it is that I want to do. And that vision of the sky and feeling of, uh, of ability, of control, um, also bolsters me um, for the rest of the day. So I deliberately reset the perceptual frames that would be natural to somebody my age. And on a day like today, when it's raining, most days when it's raining, I can manage to do my full hour and 20 minute walk in the afternoon. But today it was raining too much to do that. And I am sitting here like a caged animal right now. But there's a there's a phrase for all of this stuff we're talking about. And it is infrastructure of habit. Hmm. And the infrastructure of habit that you establish has everything to do with who you are and who you become. I I really do identify with that proving that you are not old, right? There's always ideas of things versus when you actually see it happen, right? right. You always you always know your family's there for you and they love you and that's all well and good. When I actually hit the bottom of the barrel summer 2016, two years after my brother committed suicide, and I thought I was going to, and my parents came and swooped me up like I was a baby, took me home, got me a therapist, got me all of the care I could need, and my brothers were right there for me. Then it's like, oh, these aren't kind words. This shit's real. And they're there right. for you the second day, the second month, the fifth year through ups and downs. And I mean, you know, in, in, in college, I was a, a clinical OCD pre-med psychopath. I'd work out every morning with my <laughs> flex dumbbells, take cold showers, meditate and had a 4.0. And when my brother took his life in 2014 and I decided I didn't want to go to medical school, I started on on benzodiazepines and cough, oh, syrup, at, yeah, cough syrup at night and smoking a bong in the morning and Adderall and Vyvanse and, and liquor and, and weed and vapes and, and every little medication I could use to just blot myself out of acknowledging the reality that I was descending into. And I gained no less than 67 pounds in two Amazing. years. I got not even chubby. I got fat. And... As I tried to piece my life back together after I moved home with my parents at age 26, you know, I, I got sober and I lost some of the weight, but I started to grow into this idea that I'm just older now. I'm not. Right. 80. And I was talking to myself like I was 88. I was like, well, <laughs> you're older. I was 26. And I was like, you're older now. You're not going to be able to do as many push-ups, and you might not be as cut, but you're just a little chubby now. And when I started this podcast, like two weeks before 2020, all of that began to shift. I have lost, I've lost 47 of those pounds now. I exercise harder and longer every day. I'm, I get to talk to you. I'm reading more. I've read more audiobooks listened to in the last two years than I have in my entire life. And I actually, I'm getting to a point, it might take another year where I think I could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with pre-med 21-year-old Tommy. And to me, it is showing me now more than ever that it's not just a, a nice little cliche you see on a poster, that age really is a mindset. And that is what your vibrational plankings show you. This is showing me that age is just a mindset. No, when I get up and I 
I do more push-ups and I sit in the sauna and I meditate and I do cold showers and I do these interviews with guys like you. I know for a fact at the end of the day, no one needs to tell it to me. It's confirmed in my own react. No one needs to convince me that this water bottle is here. Right. Just, just You can say whatever you want. It's in my hand, dude. I see it every day that I am capable of this. And it is what you said is, is the infrastructure of habit. And it's important to know if you're in college, every semester, you have a whole new set of courses and you start out in chaos. You can't remember which rooms and which times your classes are in, much less the material they're trying to teach you. And what you need to do is establish an infrastructure of habit for the challenges of that semester. Um, you need to establish an exact time when you will go to work and you will never let yourself out of it and how long you will work um, and never let yourself out of that. Um, and when, once you do, you have a feeling of control over your life. Um, before you do, you have a sense of utter chaos. Well, there are um, anatomical, there are biological results of a feeling of control. If you feel you have no control over your life, your stress hormones begin to kill you off. Um, you're subject to uh, self-destruct mechanisms like depression um, or suicidal thoughts. But if you have a sense of control over your life, then your immune system supports you. Um, your internal chemistry supports you. It makes you more vigorous. It makes you stronger. It makes you more capable of focusing your mind. So gaining a sense of control, some people will call that being a control freak, which is crazy. Now, any good thing in excess is a poison, and that includes control. But you need a sense of control over your life, a justified, realistic sense of control. And your greatest lever to establish that sense of control is infrastructure of habit, which is a Bloomian phrase. And I don't think I've gotten to use that in any of my books yet. It's unlikely that they'll come up in the next books. To my own, and that's that's the perfect way to describe it, is the beginning of a college semester. You got to find out which where's the biology building, where's the chemistry building, when do I leave, when can I what, what can I do in between, how do I, when am I most awake during the day, when can I do the studying, and you get into these rhythms, and then, you know, as the semester goes on, does it not become somewhat easier? You're in your rhythm. You start to notice little things. I always see that guy this time of the day. This is when I see my roommate. This is the day that I see the bus there, and it's kind of like having an army of secretaries in your brain. You're just pawning, you're delegating. You no longer have to control every aspect of the corporation. You have the people responding and reporting to you. Right, because once it becomes um, a habit, it becomes automatic. Yes. And you don't have to undergo um, cognitive load, it's called, anymore. The more stuff you have as cognitive load, um, the less of your brain and energy you have available to do the major focus of your time and day. So it's very important to offload cognitive load and habit does that for you. Once you've established it, it takes time to establish it. Once it's established, yes, it is like your army of secretaries taking care of things for you. And on cognitive load, I used to discover when I was running the Howard Bloom organization, 
my PR firm in the music industry with Prince and Michael Jackson and people like that as clients. Um, I would get very irritated with my staff members and I wouldn't know why. And it took me years and years to figure out what was going on here. I would think of something in a flick and then forget what its details were, but it was something I wanted my staff to do. And I was irritated because my staff wasn't doing it, even though I had no clear articulation anymore of what it was. So what I do now is I have a post-it note next to the head of the bed where a lot of these things hit you. And the minute something crosses my brain that needs yep. to be done, I write it down. So that it is not creating a cognitive load. So my brain is free to function on optimal. That is, I have the, the notepad on my iPhone. As soon uh -huh. as I'm, I'll be on the toilet or I'll be on the treadmill or I'll be at the store. I mean, truly walking down the aisle with a handful of with chicken breasts and water and pops into my head. I need to write an email to Ray McGovern. Put it on the note. You don't even have to write the email right now. Put it on the note and I put a little red dot. There's like an emoji that's just a red right. circle. Put it next to it. And then every day, I'll pull it up. So what's hey, today is January 19th. So you can see my my January 19th, my January oh, 19th, geez. 2020, have all my things. You know, I have my daily ones, uh, my, you know, meditate, be grateful. I think of one thing you're grateful for, uh, meal prep, put out your meds for tomorrow, clean clothes for tomorrow, workout clothes for tomorrow, laundry, dishes, post podcast, listen to an hour of an audiobook, call mom. Those are my dailies. But then right. I have these other little things, uh, reschedule Dr. Bregan, uh, uh, upload a video to locals, uh, uh, get the get the director of the film birthright, get the I have these little things that maybe they don't even need to be done today. But what right. I do, the first thing I do at the beginning of the day when they're all still with red dots next to them is I copy and paste it and make a new note. So this morning on the 19th, the very first thing I do during the day is copy and paste it, make a new note for tomorrow that says January 20th, 2023. And everything's still there. So today, right. if I don't get through it all, it's fine. It's there for tomorrow. And if I do knock one of them off today, I will also go to tomorrow's note and remove it. I no longer have to write this follow-up email to Howard Bloom. Right. And just some of the things you have to get to tonight, but some of the things it's, I had no, I didn't hear, hear the term cognitive load, but to me it was just always one less ball I was juggling. Right. Because right? you're walking around and, oh, fuck, I have to write that email to, to Ray McGovern. I keep forgetting that. And No, just as you remove these these like flies from the windshield. It just clears it all up. Right. And at the very base, you're just less stressed. You sleep better. But it also, it frees it up for bigger and better ideas. And then that's where you, something dawns on you of kind of these higher order scales where you're like, well, if I'm doing this every day, all day, and I spend 20 minutes in the sauna, why don't I, why don't I like put my phone in a plastic bag so the moisture doesn't kill it? But then I can listen to 20 more minutes of an audiobook in there. After a week, that's, that's an extra hour. <laughs> that's an extra two hours a day. That's an extra right. two hours a week, 52 weeks a year. That's an extra 104 hours. That's an extra 10 audiobooks that right. I can have in my head that I then utilize for my podcast, which is my source of revenue. And then you get that, and then you put it into the infrastructure of habit. And it takes a couple days or weeks to sort of get it glossed over. But eventually, these new things that at first you have to work at become as unconscious as tying your shoes. And then someone on the outside looks at it and goes, how the people will say, like, how the fuck do you do so many podcasts? It is so unconscious and reflexive to me 
right? And I'm just like, I don't even, I don't, I don't know. How do you do two a day? I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about how do I start doing three a day? Like, right. That is the infrastructure of habit. And to someone not in that habitual world, it looks like you're just this superhuman. But to you or me, it's no different than wake up, brush your teeth, go to the bathroom. Right. And there's another little secret to the okay. list. All right. And it's uh, ultimately you want to turn everything that you're doing into a game. Yes. And you want everything broken down into little steps so that you get little a feeling of satisfaction little when you can get hits. rid of that little step. Right. Yeah, little sparks. So I, um, back when I, again, was running the Howard Bloom organization, um, I when I did a list for a staff member of the things that she needed to do, or when I did a list for myself, Every item was preceded by a little O for a reason. So you could check off that little O once you had achieved it. And the base, I broke the basic steps of music industry and film publicity down to about six steps. And then we did the equivalent of a spreadsheet with those six columns. So that when you were working on one of the clients that you had as your own, like Billy Idol, for example, um, you could check off each box once you'd completed it. And those boxes were designed to drive you toward producing results you could show to yes. the client, not just bullshitting around and doing action that took you nowhere. Um, but it was gamification at every step. Every step you could check off was a sense of satisfaction. Yes. And you need to do that for yourself. And when you're in school in particular, when life is really crazy when you're in college, um, you have to work hard to get a sense of how much you could accomplish in a minute, in 10 minutes, in half an hour, and an hour. You had to understand your own natural work productivity rate so that you could break a big project like a 12 page essay um, down into micro projects, um, the steps that led you to that 12 page essay. And guess what? In the old days, you used to panic mm -hmm. two days before that essay was due because you really hadn't accomplished anything. But if you execute on each of the steps that you've broken things down into, and you can check the box on that and get a feeling of satisfaction, by the time two days before the essay is due comes around, you've done 95% of the You're essay. Fine. You're gliding. You're on easy street. You're yeah. sailing. I do that with, <clears throat> like last year I did 385 episodes. I listened to 80, no, 86 or 69 nonfiction audiobooks. I went from 219 to 186 pounds. All Amazing. these things that you'll panic if you just look at it and go, I, I, how do I, you know, you listen to an audiobook, you're like, I have to listen to 69 audiobooks. I've been listening to this one for eight hours and my brain's melting. Well, no, you're that you're never going to, you're going to quit if you do that. I listen to about an hour a day. As soon as I wake up, before I even do the list, is I turn on whatever book I'm listening to. And over the course of 10 minutes, Every minute, I'll speed it up from 1x to 1.1 to 1.2 to 1. <laughs> I get it up to 2x. Because right. if you just jump right into 2x, you it's can't. It's very hard. But if you just right. ease into it, 
it's like warming up at a gym or it's like a that's plane. interesting it's a plane reaching cruising altitude right By the time you hit thirty five thousand feet it doesn't even feel like you're at thirty five thousand. versus if you just got launched by a slingshot the g-forces would kill you right? right so i bring it up slowly to 2x speed and then i run for you know i'll keep it on for about an hour i wake up make my bed answer emails i'll go to the gym by the time i'm getting into the sauna it's been about an hour and then i turn it off no matter how much i'm enjoying it i'll just turn it off because it's not about how much can i do today it's i have to keep it small enough and digestible enough that i can do it tomorrow and right the reason why i make these baby steps so small and so easy is if you make a to-do list while you're drinking a cup of coffee, that's a horrible idea because you're going to be like, I need to build a skyscraper. And it's like, no, 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 no. Make it to do list at the end of the day when you can barely keep your eyes open. Brilliant. I do that, too. Because if you keep it to the point where you're like tired, me can do this. Well, then any me can do this. And but there's another thing. All right. At the end of the day, you have a whole bunch of things that are very obvious to you that you know need to be done next. Yeah. So your tendency is to assume that you will mm. remember these things that are vividly in your mind tomorrow when you get started. Well, that's false. Tomorrow okay. you have no idea of what you're supposed to do next. You've forgotten the whole thing. So you have to get that list down in the evening before you forget the while you still, you know, have the balls up in the air and remember where you've got to pick them up from. Um so these are brilliant ideas. Yes, we do pretty much the same sort of thing. Um, my girlfriend calls them everyday rituals. Yeah. And it's, if you do them in these tiny little steps, at first you're like, oh, I can do this. And then it goes to another level of, you're not even thinking anymore of, oh, I can do this. It just becomes... Your daily ritual. I, I don't think I don't wake up and go like, like I turn on my audiobook so that at the end of the year I can have this. No, it just becomes part of your thing, right? And then as the year goes by and you start looking back, you're like, holy shit, I've already listened to forty history books, like Jesus Christ in heaven. But you keep it tiny and small. And after six months of doing it every day, if you you've shown yourself you can master it, then push the infrastructure a little more you go let's go up to 2.1x and then you do that for uh, a couple months and then you push it a little I, I, that's how i got up to 2x is i did a 1.1 1.2 and you push these barriers just a little farther you just push the walls out just another inch you make the room just a little bit bigger you make the ceiling a little bit higher and you just keep pushing them so slowly though that you never you never once really acknowledge the pain of growth. Only when the first idea comes in of, I should try to do this. It's a little, it's a little discomforting there. But as you push it more and more and more, a year goes by. And I, I always think of it like when you see those, those trucks on the road, like a newly paved road and they're painting the road and they put down the little like roller and they just, Beep, they just put it on the line and it, you know, because the car is moving or the truck's moving, it makes like a, you know, a 30 foot yellow line in the middle. Of the right. Road. But that roller isn't thinking like, oh, I got to pull this 30 feet. It's just poking it. 
And it's because the ground is moving underneath it. Right. I look at time as flowing like that. And we're in these trucks. And you just, like, putting your hand into a stream off of a boat, if you just put down the net of, I'm going to listen to an hour of an audiobook a day at 2x speed, you don't view it as, oh, I have to listen to this whole book. You're just poking out into the the four-dimensional stream of time. And a week goes by, and then two weeks goes by. You're like, holy shit, I've already listened to, what, 28 hours of audiobooks. You just poke it out there and kind of like putting a, a, a like a bubble thing out of a window and then the air catches it and it inflates the bubble. Right. You can sort of catch time that way by putting out these, I'm going to do a push-up every day. One month goes by and now you've done 30. I'm going to do two a day. So the next month goes by and you've done 60. Or I'm going to do two episodes a day. And then a couple of months goes by and you've added 300 episodes to your library just these little like this stream of time is passing by us and like early windmill not windmills like water mills used to power textile mills you can sort of put these little nets and antennas and sails out into the flow of time going by and they don't feel like you're doing a lot of subjective work but a year goes by and you have these wild achievements and you never quite feel like you're doing a whole lot of work but if you do it every day, and like you said, make it infrastructure, make it your habit, make it your daily ritual, you can achieve more shit than you ever thought you could have. And it really doesn't even feel like you're doing a whole lot. Well, I agree. Andrew Marvel, the poet, and To His Coy Mistress, which is one of the most extraordinary attempts to seduce a virgin um, in the history of literature, um, says... Um, let us take all our strength and all our joy and roll it up into one bowl and roll it with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. In other words, aging is going to get us one way or the other. Death is eventually going to get us one way or the other. But the, the optimal attitude is to say a big screw you to death um, and to aging and to uh, get your revenge by living seven lifetimes in one. Hmm. And that's what I've pretty much done, um, you know, starting in science and establishing scientific credentials and then um, moving into popular culture and establishing um, the leading avant-garde art studio on the East Coast and then moving into magazine editing um, and increasing the magazine circulation 211%, Circus Magazine, The Rock Magazine, and then starting what became the biggest PR firm in the music industry, and then going back to my science, um, and now running, in addition to my science, several space groups. So um, I was asked to uh, give a talk on this, on how to lead seven lives in one, um, in Bensonhurst, which is very arts- oriented neighborhood and that's Bensonhurst it's brick it's Bushwick that's it um and so I sat down to look over my autobiography which is very hard to think about all at once because there are so many pieces um and I discovered I didn't have seven lives I'd had 27 lives I mean for example 
being the poet that NYU thought we would be the next great poet to come out of NYU and editing the literary magazine at NYU, turning it into experimental graphics and literary magazine and raising a ruckus, um, not just on campus, but among the art directorial community. The art directors of some of the major magazines thought we were pioneering something and wanted meetings. Um, so I, the advice that we're giving about how to maximize your time and stuff as much stuff as possible into um, infrastructure of habit um, can allow you to accomplish all kinds of extraordinary things. Now, what does it look like in, because so I'm, I'm 32 and there's truly nothing I enjoy more than like fine honing my daily ritual. I loved it in college. I absolutely loved it. After my brother died, I, I kind of indulged in, in everything, thinking that that's where happiness was. And it was, it was miserable. Doing drugs and eating fast food is absolutely miserable. And I always used to think if I had like a terminal diagnosis of cancer and I would just like smoke pot and eat McDonald's all day, that's fucking miserable. The most fun I have is working and dieting and exercising and, and creating. And I'm always kind of curious as to where does this go? Now, granted, there's never any finish line. That's the entire idea behind it is you enjoy the process of it. Sure, the achievements are fun and they're, you know, you put them on the wall and shine them, but that's not why you're doing it. You're always looking to the next one. And that that is what I think keeps me alive and, and rejuvenated. What is it? Because I, I, I get to sort of reach into the future by talking to you. You know, you're you're 47 years older than me. What advice do you have have for me? Just someone with, who's, who has a, a, a pretty similar mind to yours in, in terms of our habits and where we find satisfaction and fulfillment from and, and the pleasure of creating and, and working and and making that work efficient. What it, what advice well, would I, you, you could reach hard, back in time? It's hard to say um, because ultimately the, the big message is follow your curiosities. Um, follow your bliss, Joseph Campbell mm -hmm. um, used to say, because your curiosities and your bliss, your things you're passionate about, will increase the energy you can put into things by a factor by it'll double it um easily and then you can work i had a friend who was 78 years old and this is when i was only 70. so i used to lecture him that every day you wake up is the first day of the most important 20 years of your life and then i went to look up his age on wikipedia and it turned out he was 78 years old his name was buzz aldrin and he loved these lectures he just loved hearing them. Now I'm well past seven, I'm past 78 years old. I'm about to be 80 in June. And so in trying to think of what is the next step, the obvious answer was something you hear about in presidential politics all the time, legacy. And I had an advantage when it comes to legacy that most people do not. When, when I was totally rejected in Buffalo, New York by both my parents and other kids, 
And I ran across a book one day, a juvenile book on science, and it said the first two rules of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your li of life, and um, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. And the first one, uh, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, came from Galileo. And the second one, look at things right under your nose, came from Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the man who invented the microscope. Mm -hmm. So I realized very early in life, roughly the age of 10, this is the only social group that would accept me. Anton von Leeuwenhoek, Galileo, and the people of science. Um, they could, they had to accept me for a simple reason. They were dead. They couldn't complain <laughs> if I joined their group. But it slowly dawned on me that two men had reached out across 350 years to catch me, to save me when I was at a delicate moment. So what does that leave as my obligation? To reach out across the next 350 years and save some other poor, confused, lost kid. Um, so I've known that's my mission for I don't know how many decades um, now, for over half a century. So when I was trying to think of what's the next step, you can't keep telling yourself every or, or there's going to come a time very soon when you can't keep telling yourself that every day you wake up is the first day of the most important 20 years of your life. Because who knows how long you live from the age of 80 on. So what should really be my focus right now? And the answer, the obvious answer was legacy. Um, so there's a Howard Bloom Institute, and it's now two years old, and it's working on establishing a college course, university course on omnology, uh, the discipline for the promiscuously curious, for people who uh, don't want to get siloed in one specialization, but want to see across the silos and see the big picture that emerges. And I'm trying to get a Why Save Western Civilization initiative off the ground within that group. But I can't stop producing new books with new thoughts. Um, if I stop thinking original thoughts, it will be the death of me. Uh -huh. So I've got um, the book that I'm working on now and I'm close to being finished with, I think, uh, The Case of the Sexual Cosmos, Everything You Know About Nature is Wrong. And then I have to apply myself to the toughest book of all, the one that is supposed to sum up and make sense of all of my work, and that is the grand unified theory of everything in the universe, including sex, violence, and the human soul. So I have both legacy to work on. That wouldn't be enough for me. Tommy, that would never be enough for me. Um, that's a side project. And and I have my next two books, which, if I'm lucky, my, my strength will hold up. I mean, you could tell my strength is good from the five and a half miles of walking a day and the 1,250 vibrational plankings. Um, it can't hold up that way forever. Um, although yesterday, the BBC had a report on a man who, when his wife died a few years ago, volunteered to help children learn to read um, in some local facility for six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and younger. And they love him. And he gets a kick out of doing it. And he's really good at doing it. But he's in a wheelchair and he's a hundred years old. And on Monday, I took a walk for the first time in three years with my mentor in neurobiology. 
And um, I had asked him, I know he loves walking every day. So I had asked him if he felt that he could handle a 3.2 mile walk. And he said, well, I do two miles a day, but I think I can do 3.2. So we took a long walk together, an hour and 20 minutes, and he's 93 years old and, and still pushing. And he was trying to explain to me how, well, he kept teaching until he was 90. And um, he's retired from teaching now. And he kept, tried to explain to me how that now that he has retired, he's busier than when he was working. So that's a role model um, to follow, a couple of role models to follow. But so do what you do best to do what you enjoy doing the most. And if there are pleasures and curiosities and centers of passion in you that you haven't been following, try to slowly inch your way into those two. Okay. Uh, and, and then you'll see where you stand when you have to start evaluating at the age of 75 or 80. I definitely, and we've talked about that before, the figures reaching out across time and basically making you feel less alone. Right. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm blessed in that I found that with you that I get to talk to you about that you're alive and, and, and I get to be friends with you because you're alive, not because you're dead. So it's even more meaningful. <laughs> and it's like, he could have rejected me and he didn't, but right. I do kind of look at that when I'm like, what's the grand version of it all? Like countries rise and fall empires rise and fall. I'm like, what is the lasting effect you could really have on this world? And honestly, the only because I always come down to even like, well, what if it's all just a simulation? What if it's and the only like boiled down thesis, like the elemental center of it that I can get to that seems to be a, a good place to hang my hat is the reduction of of pain. And that doesn't mean get rid of pain and suffering, because I think pain and suffering are good. I think it they mold you and they shape you. But then there's there's kind of unnecessary pain and so right? There's anxiety because you haven't paid your bills. That's good anxiety. That's not bad right. anxiety. That's good anxiety. But I've also, I had a concussion last summer and was just having unwarranted panic attacks based on nothing. Those suck. Those absolutely suck. I know. I had them with CFS. And I'm very lucky that there is a history of physicians before me that have discovered medic and unlike going on benzos after my brother died to self-medicate, this was something where once a week, if I had a panic attack, I could take an Ativan or a Xanax. And that went on for about two months, about once a week. I was immeasurably blessed. I mean, I would be in tears, you know, not, not anxiety. I mean, in bed, can't breathe, need a call 911. Wow. And being able to have a doctor call in just a, a solitary Xanax cap that I could go pick up, somehow not crash my car from anxiety. I mean, I felt like someone pulling me out of the flames of hell. And I would just lay there and the anxiety would go away. And then I could get up and the next day be right back at podcasts and exercising. And whoever invented Alprazolam or discovered it, I don't know who that is. I don't even know if they're alive. But that had an undefinable effect on me. Not in that 
someone was just giving me money so I didn't have to work anymore. But in terms of getting rid of something that I had no idea how to get, and again, not, not, not panic because, Hey, you haven't paid your bills and you haven't paid your parking tickets and there's a warrant out for your arrest. That's good anxiety. That's an evolutionary skill. Right. Anxiety because I, I hit my head on a rock earlier in the summer based on nothing and was ruining. I mean, truly ruining my subjective experience here on earth. I mean, my brain turning inside out and upside down and black is white. And it just, nothing made sense. Truly like consciousness turning staticky. And so I always think like, what can I do to alleviate that in someone in the future? And that might be as something as simple as donating a charity. That might be someone 50 years from now might watch these podcasts and then hear me talking and realize, Hey, I can do that too. And maybe they'll find their bliss in there and their life will become, they'll love it. But that's, that's, that's about as much as I've concluded is reduce, reduce unwarranted pain in as many people as you can. And it might just be one person. It might be a billion. Like the guy that made that, was it dwarf weed? where he's like single-handedly made it possible to feed billions of people efficiently. And like, no one even knows his name because he didn't patent it. Like that's, I think that's what we, we reach towards, but that's even, that's just my conclusion. Someone else's might be different. Theirs might be space travel, right? I think above all else, Elon Musk wants to be known as the guy that got us to the next planet. Well, he wants to be known as the guy who planted us or built a city on Mars. Yes. Yes. But still laying the the framework or the groundwork for what other a multi-planetary civil, yes. civilization that a seems to be his species. legacy yeah yes um well it's hard to know but but i'll tell you a story that relates to the panic attacks and see if this sounds like it explains anything it's okay. something i was forced to figure out while i had cfs because i had to avoid every form of stress because if I had a stress attack, it could set me back for three months. Um, I might have been able to walk to the front of the apartment and back, let's say, four times a day. Now I couldn't walk to the front of the apartment at all. Um, and not to mention that it felt horrible. For everyone that there doesn't is, know, you had chronic fatigue chronic fatigue syndrome for right, 15 years. Myalgic encephalomyelitis, yes, for 15 years stuck in a bedroom. So I figured out that there are handling system in the body. And it works by, through a, a, an exciter pushing the needle in this direction versus an inhibitor that pushes the needle in this direction so that when the two are in balance, the needle's up here somewhere. And you can see this system at work when a loud, unexpected noise takes place outside your apartment, um, like a car backfiring. And in the jumpy half a second, in which you respond to that, you can see your stress handling system going into the red zone. You can see it if you watch. Um, Well, it turned out that in my um, chronic fatigue syndrome, the stress handling system was perpetually in the red zone. Mm. And when your body is in the red zone, in the high stress situation, it stops all all internal repair and it gets to work on opening every glucose molecule so it can be used as fuel. Respond to the threat. Yes. The problem is 
that within a couple of hours, you're going to run out of the glucose molecules and a whole bunch of other resources which you've mobilized for an immediate battle. And when you run out, you're going to get so weak that you can't even get out of your own bed. You're going to get so weak that you cannot even talk. Now, it turns out that the stress handling system, um, the exciter, is something called glutamate. Mm -hmm. The inhibitor is something called GABA. Yeah, gamma amino um, acid. Yeah, when you take a, uh, a Valium or a Valium imitation, a benzodiazepine, it helps the GABA system. It feeds into the GABA system and it helps take the needle from here, ultra danger, up to here and possibly even right to the middle. So I, when I first discovered how effective Valium was at making me feel normal, um, I was able to take 27 Valium a day and it didn't make me tired. Um, it didn't Jeez. put me to sleep. Um, it just made me sharper. Um, so, and then I learned about the possible use of oxytocin. Mm -hmm. Oxytocin is the bonding hormone. It's the the love hormone. It's the yeah. hormone that helps us feel warm and fuzzy about oh, each sure. other. And in uh, in behavioral economics or neuroeconomics, it's the hormone that builds trust, as in a bank calls itself a trust because it's based on an emotion, trust. Um, so uh, oxytocin, if you check it out, trickles down to guess what system? The GABA system. And it okay. boosts the GABA, the inhibitor. Um, well, eventually I learned that uh, taking a lot of Valium isn't necessarily good. Um, I learned that when I tried to kill myself, which is a whole different story. Um, and um, the the final element was gabapentin, hmm. which is used these days as an antidepressant. It's used to uh, subdue pain. Um, it's used for all kinds of things. And it affects the GABA system. So if I don't, a week ago, um, I was working. I was sitting here at the computer at seven o'clock at night and I began to feel chills and I began to feel ill. And it occurred to me that I might have forgotten to take my gabapentin in the afternoon because this kind of thing has happened to me before. So I went over to the drug drawer and I took out the bottle of gabapentin and I looked at the notes on the top. I have to take notes because otherwise I don't remember what the hell I've done, mm -hmm. um, especially in an automatic process like taking pills for half an hour. Mm -hmm. um, and sure enough, I hadn't taken my gabapentin that day. Um, when I was on my way to Moscow in 2004 to address an international conference of quantum physicists on why everything they knew about quantum physics was wrong. I, it was an experiment. I could easily have triggered my chronic fatigue syndrome again and ended up back in bed. But I made it all the way to Frankfurt, Germany, and I was soaring. I was sailing. I was having the time of my life. Um, and then halfway between Frankfurt and Moscow, I began to feel really, really sick. And by the time we got to the Moscow airport, um, I asked my assistant, I was traveling with an assistant because if I got sick, what the hell could I do? Um, I'd need somebody to take care of me. So I asked him to find some place where I could lay down in the airport. Now, this is an airport where there are men with 
automatic rifles um, all over the place in military fatigues. It's not a warm and friendly airport. Um, and he discovered that there was a, a tiny little clinic and that if I surrendered my passport, they would let me lay down. Now that's a big deal. The minute you surrender your passport, you're a non-person. An alien. Yeah, um, in Russia. But I was so desperate, I had to do it. Meanwhile, my mind was doing a checklist to see what I might have forgotten to do that might be responsible for all of this. And I realized that I had been on a flight during the afternoon when I normally take my pills, including my six gabapentin. So I had my um, assistant open up the luggage, um, get the gabapentin, and give me the six that I had missed. And within 15 minutes, I was normal and human again. So a little thing like this stress handling system, I view it this way because when I was driving a Ford Cortina in England in the 1980s, and I was supposed to go to this um, opening of a country home by the man who owned uh, Genesis Records. Um, well, it, that, no, I don't think that's what it was called, but it was the record company that had Genesis, the band. And we were on our way. The guy that I was following was supposed to be running this party. And he arrived two hours late to pick me up in his car so I could follow his car and know where the fuck I was going. And um, how did the story relate? Um, oh, I forget. At any rate, oh, the Ford Cortina. Okay, so this guy is pushing his little Austin princess to its absolute top speed all the way up to where we're going. So I have to put mm, the yeah. foot to the full floor of my little Ford Cortina. And there's a tachometer. And I always thought tachometers were just decorations. Um, no, the tachometer is not a decoration. Over here is the green zone. Over here is the red zone. And I did this entire trip in the red zone which means I could have blown out my engine at any time. <laughs> so the stress handling system in your body is like the tachometer mm. in that little Ford Cortina. And if you have chronic fatigue syndrome, or if you have whatever you had as a result of your concussion, um, the inhibitory part can be crippled. And you need to get it working again. Because without the balance between the two, the, the exciter and the inhibitor, glutamate and GABA, you can be dead in the water. Does that make any sense? And looking at your own, no, no, attacks? no, ten thousand percent. And it's, you know, there's kind of some like meta themes with our last episode, the infrastructure of, um, um, fantasy, a fantasy. I was trying to remember was it fantasy or imagination, and the infrastructure of uh, of habit, and both of them, we can start to see some similarities, right? A, a fantasy is you push out what was once an idea into a bleeding edge idea, which turns into a cutting edge idea, which turns into a norm, which turns into a saturated market, which turns into an accepted part of life. Right. right. You and I, exactly. a car is a car. My dad had a car. My grandpa had a car so far back that you don't even remember. I've never even met a person that didn't know about cars. Right. It's so far right. that you mirror now that we then move forward from that, right? And Elon Musk, reusable rockets. We want to get to a point where, you know, it's been what, five, what, when was the first reusable rocket? Was it 2015, 2016, when it finally landed? 
Um, I'm not sure. It was probably around 2013. Okay. So as he's had something like 86 successful landings. Okay. So 10 years, but they're not right. The first time it happened, it's 100 million views on Twitter. Now he right. just tweets 87th. You're like, oh, shut up. Yeah, I get it. Your rocket's land. It's been 10 years and we are taking this miracle. It's just, I, 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 yeah, we get it. You did it, right? Well, what he's got coming next is going to change the relationship between life and the cosmos. Um, life and the solar system. It's his starship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which carries 100 passengers. A hundred. This brutally expensive thing that nasa launched a month and a half ago artemis um the artemis moon rocket it's that, a hoax that that but clunker, it's, that clunker it, yeah it's a 4.1 billion dollar per launch rocket orbital carries, money laundering machine yes and guess how many <laughs> passengers it carries roughly three elon's rocket and you throw it away when you're finished using it which is one of the things that makes it so expensive um elon's rocket the starship carries a hundred passengers and again the uh, artemis moon rocket costs 4.1 billion dollars per launch elon musk is hoping to be able to bring his starship in at two million dollars per launch which means if he succeeds and one, you know he'll one, be off thousands. maybe it'll be four that four million dollars per launch um but if he succeeds, that will mean that for the price of one Artemis moon rocket, you can buy 2,000 launches of the Starship. That's sending 200,000 people to space for the price of one Artemis moon launch. And the Artemis moon launch is a, uh, it's a fraud because it really has almost nothing to do with the moon. The the Artemis moon rocket cannot land on the moon and the capsule it carries, the Orion with the three people, that can't land on the moon either. Hmm. But a starship is built to land. A starship, you can take a starship all the way from Boca Chica to the surface of the moon, which the Artemis moon rocket cannot do. And then you can take off again, refuel and bring come back to earth and land here all stuff the artemis moon rocket cannot come anywhere near achieving so that rocket uh the starship prototype is supposed to take its first orbital launch probably in the next two months and that will be a turning point an inflection point yeah because that's when ecosystems will begin to uh easily be able to space and remember if i put you in space tommy I've put an ecosystem in space mm -hmm. because 90% of your cells don't even pretend to be you. They're, they're bacterial care. colonies. Yeah. Uh, and there are between a hundred and a thousand species of them living in you, on you, and helping you do things like turn your armpit um, perspiration odorous um, and digest your food, um, produce your vitamin B and vitamin P and vitamin K. Um, you need these things to survive. So just put you alone um, into space and we have launched an ecosystem. And <clears throat> like the infrastructure of fantasy, by as that becomes the norm and then that becomes the baseline, that's where you start to really feel in your bones the saying, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Yep. 
And so whether it's the actual physical mobility of the human civilization to another planet, another gravity well, or be it inventing a digestible bioactive form of gabapentin, we are standing on the shoulders of them. And, you know, some of it, sure, it sounds grandiose and cliche, like, you know, well, we're standing on, all right, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'm standing on the shoulders of whoever invented the water bottle. Yeah, right. But then when you have a panic attack and you're truly feels like your life is ending and then you put something under your tongue and in 20 minutes, it's gone. Right. You're normal again. Then it stops being this romantic idea. Like I would like to leave the world a better place. And you go, Oh, Oh, I'm, I'm saving someone's literal or metaphorical panic attack a hundred years from now. I don't know what it is, but you know, as much as I'd like to, you know, whatever, push the podcasting space forward. That's all well and good. That's that's a bit of a, you know, that's like an ego project. But if there's something out there, if there's like a message that someone can listen to in, in 30 years of you and I talking right now, and they're probably thinking like, yeah, they're talking about self-landing rockets. They don't even know about the new warp drive. Or You're standing on the shoulders of that. And I don't think I'm ever going to be able to build self-landing rockets, but I hope at the very least when my life is finished, that sure, you know, make, make the world a better place. And I want the people around me to feel loved and all that good stuff. I want the equivalent of someone who is born after my grandkids are born to be able to experience the equivalent of a gabapentin or a Valium and not even give a shit if they know it's me. Just like, I don't know who, who discovered Alprazolam or diazepam. That is... I, I think that's maybe a, a new take on the quote, a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they won't sit under. Oh, that's my, terrific. My new take, my, my, my twist on that is I want people to take a Valium and they not know who, who invented it. Like, right. That's when I think, I think those are the, the infrastructures of habits of, of centuries that if we can all get on board with that idea of just make the future a little less shitty, not even to make it beautiful, make it a little less painful. I think that's when, like an infrastructure of habit, where a year goes by and you go, holy shit, I added muscle. I did 300 episodes. <laughs> that's I want, you know, you want three millennia to go by and everyone just did a little bit. And then one day, you're at a point where it's an unrecognizable utopia. And I think, right. I do think that's like a, that's like a noble thing to pursue. I agree with you. And we have unrecognizable utopias every 20 to 40 years, and we just don't notice them. Yes. We're living in a, a utopia. You, I'm, we'll finish up with this because I know we're running in an hour. I'm reading uh, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair right now about right. The, the meat packing. And, oh, holy, yes. What an insanely good book. But I've been listening to that book and nothing, truly nothing, short of those panic attacks last summer, has made me appreciate my day-to-day -day life. When I take an elevator down to my air-conditioned gym and then get into a sauna, and I'm reading about Yurgis, you know, cutting open deer or, or cattle and he's getting blood diseases and he's living in a house and it's raining and snowing and the, the woods are warping and the policemen are beating his kids. And, and then I come into this room and I sit down in front of a glossy iMac and I get to talk to you. I'm like, wow, 
a lot of shit happened for life to go from meatpacking in Chicago in 1904 to 2023 United States. I think that's that's kind of like my inspiration right now is I cool. want someone to look back at the life that right now I think it's great. And I want them to view this as 1904 packing town and be like, thank God I'm not there. That's that's progress in my mind. And one little detail. Sure. Um, with the meatpacking industry, um, humans were born to eat meat. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a chemical in the gut that only goes off and goes to the brain. If you eat meat, it's cholecystokinin. Um, you have teeth that are designed for eating both grains and or vegetable matter and meat. Humans need meat. But for a thousand years or so, the only people who could afford meat were the aristocracy. The meatpacking industry, for all of its horrors, was for the first time making meat available mm-hmm. to the sorts of people that for a thousand years had been deprived of meat, unable to eat meat. So even that was a step sure. toward a paradise. Sure. And that's what they say in the book is they go through all the horrors of it. And then it's like, but now meat is going to the, the four corners of the globe. Like in even Jurgis, his Lithuanian immigrant family, even they can get like, shavings of meat and it's we're looking back at packing town and saying what a hell packing town was probably looking back at 1804 and saying we've got it made yes I think, exactly i think that's how you want life to go and that is a noble thing to push forward to and and you might think like okay that's that's all fun and grandiose and sounds sweet and you would put it on a poster or an instagram but whatever no there's real value in the now so what's the point of doing it i'm not going to be alive in 2104 but there is, like you said, the gamification. Or I always say, like, always keep a carrot in front of you. It will make your day-to-day life richer. It'll, right. The colors will pop more. when you ha- Even now, in the last 24 hours, I've started doing live episodes. It's added a whole new flavor to the podcast. It's completely rejuvenated and electrified it. And now every guest I have on, I've talked to you before, but now it's now it's the first time I'm talking to Howard live. Like... It is something that makes your immediate. So sure, you're making life for future generations better who you will never experience. But it also makes the present moment a lot richer and more more delicious, if that makes sense. You got it. So two things that keep us alive. Walking, very important to longevity. (laughs) Yes. And feeling that you are useful to your fellow human beings. Changes your internal chemistry and keeps you healthy. It you mean you feel like you're adding a brick into the skyscraper it, it makes it all a little better you're like i right. I did a little bit and it there it and maybe you don't believe me or believe how try it try it it does it sounds cheesy i'm telling you it it makes life richer to just it's cool to interview people. Nothing means more than when someone like emails me and they're like, Hey dude, like I was super fucking depressed, but I heard you talking about this to this person. And you know, thanks from Brazil. I'm like, that's badass. Right. Just, that's what I get off on too. It's the best shit. Yeah. Money's cool. What's even cooler is when someone's like, thanks man, I was having a shit fucking day and you made it better. I'm like, that's, that's witchcraft that someone on the other side of the planet felt better because of a conversation I had. I'm like, that's, that's goddamn like like Greek god power. I'm like that's right. cool. that's cool. 
but so um, I should let you go. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a terrible host, and as always, I abuse my time with you. Oh, you're not a terrible host. I always say I'll so let you go fun. at seven. And you're then, so like, much fun. I've done five or six interviews with you, Tommy. I know. I, I always tell you I'll let you go at seven, and then in five minutes pass, and I'm always like, I keep just, I am, I'm a bad bank. There is no trust. I will keep you. I will <laughs> always keep you five, ten minutes past. But Howard, I will put the links to all of your books in the description. The Howard Bloom Institute, your social media, your website, all that good stuff. Go check it out. My favorite uh, book of yours is, I would probably say, I think Global Brain. I think that's that's still holding the number one spot for me. I actually brought it up two days ago on an episode. Go get that one. If you're going to get any book, I would I would highly recommend Global Brain. And um, Howard, I'll send you a link to this episode, and uh, we'll schedule the next one, and I look forward to talking to you, man. Okay, terrific. Tommy, be well. Have a great night. Thank you so much. You as well. Howard Bloom, thank you so much, sir. God bless everybody.